Uh, today's episode is a really nice way to get a survey of the landscape of modern psychedelic research, how we got to where we're at, and where I think the field is going. A lot of that is, of course, based on my own experience, but I think that there's a, you know, we talked a lot about both the clinical uses of psychedelics in, in therapeutic settings, and also other ways that psychedelics could be used that, um, you know, should really be of interest to a wide uh, listener audience. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Neuroflex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. If you guys enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, along with sharing with a friend who you might uh, who might find this information useful and helpful as well. So on to today's show, we have a very special guest, a guy I'm really excited to talk to today, uh, Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. His current research interests include clinical applications of psychedelics, real-world drug use patterns, diversity in science, and the role of spirituality in mental health. He is a founding member of the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research and the International Society for Research on Psychedelics. So, Al, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Toby. Thank you for having me on. Of course, of course. So, I want to kind of you know, find out what your initial interest in psychedelics was. How did you initially get interested in the field and then decide to sort of, you know, dedicate your career to the study of it? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a long kind of convoluted story, but uh, really goes back to when I was in high school and I was really doing a lot of reading in different areas, uh, trying to just understand, you know, what are we all doing here and, you know, what's, what's the purpose of, uh, of us being here to begin with. And um, that led me to reading pretty widely in philosophy, but also uh, reading things like uh, Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda, which talks about, you know, supposed uh, or alleged experiences of this anthropologist studying, you know, with the shaman and having all these interesting experiences, uh, both drug-induced and, you know, through shamanic practice. Um, but it really started to just open up my mind to you know, the ways that different uh, cultures outside of Western kind of modern society uh, think about reality and our purpose as human beings on this planet. Uh, and so it gave me kind of a, a wider breadth uh, to think about those types of questions, which, you know, I, I continue to explore further uh, in undergraduate. I went to Tulane University in New Orleans and I had a great liberal arts education, um, was able to study both Western psychology, which had always been an interest of mine, um, and you know, that was heavily uh, predominated by a lot of neuroscience at the time, cognitive neuroscience and that kind of thing, um, was really a big uh, thread of the type of psychology that we were studying. Um, but I, I was also drawn to reading about um, philosophy of mind and consciousness, uh, as well as studying uh, Eastern religious and spiritual traditions and even taking up contemplative practice, uh, including meditation of various forms. And so all of those things kind of led me to sort of think about the mind and, and the way that we think about the world, uh, sort of in a very broad sense as having a lot of, of disparate uh, concepts or conceptualizations, you know, that, that didn't always match up, you know, the way that the mind is talked about in Buddhism, for instance, and the way that the mind is talking about in Western neuroscience, you know, can be very uh, different types of minds. Uh, and, and, you know, that kind of just left an impression on me, uh, as well as, you know, my own experience doing practices like meditation and having altered states of consciousness. Um, towards the end of my college career, I was also kind of chomping at the bit to get into some adventuring. Um, you know, I was a young man and um, I'd lived in cities my whole life, you know, primarily Miami where I grew up, but also in New Orleans where I was in school. Um, wanted to go do something um, a little bit more wild, if you will. And so I ended up getting out of out of doors for some time with uh, some friends, uh, some of whom had uh, family in the U.S. Forest Service out in Montana. 
And so that gave us the opportunity to go work and live in uh, the Glacier National Forest in Montana for uh, a few months during the summertime. Uh, and that was a, a big experience for me just because it was so different than my previous uh, life experience being, you know, in these generally heavily populated urban areas. I felt like being outside for extended periods, sleeping on the ground, seeing the stars, um, you know, being feeling that closeness to nature and the natural world um, opened me up in some ways to other types of altered states that were also very interesting and, and dif different from what I experienced in meditation practice. So that's a long way of saying, you know, I'd kind of explored a lot of different uh, different areas uh, as both the uh, you know, high school and, and undergraduate student, but um, I think that all kind of culminated. I eventually you know, spent a few years working, doing odd jobs. You know, I was bartending and, you know, loading boxes into the back of FedEx trucks and stuff and trying to figure out what was next. And um, yeah, I really felt drawn to go back to do graduate school and specifically to study sort of spirituality and uh, psychology and sort of where they intersect because it felt really important to me. I'd had my own mental health struggles, both dealing with addictions and depression kind of growing up uh, and seeing that around me and other people I cared about. Um, but I also felt like my experiences, uh, certainly with meditation and also in, in nature, you know, were very protective in many ways. And I felt like I wanted to understand that better, um, which is what led me to this, uh, you know, small school in uh, Palo Alto called the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology at the time. It's now called Sophia University, but it's still there. And they had, you know, a very heavily uh, transpersonal orientation, meaning they were very interested in, in psychology that was not just focused on the individual, but also on the person's relationship to other constructs like the natural world or even to a higher power from a spiritual sense. And so what I ended up doing there was really trying to study more about uh, how people experience transcendent states um, and what kind of impact that had on their personality and mental health. And, you know, as it turned out, there's lots of different ways of, you know, accessing these transcendent states, uh, including use of psychoactive substances uh, like psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca. Uh, so that eventually sort of led me into this a uh, place where I was studying these transcendent or mystical type experiences people sometimes report uh, and then running into some of the researchers from Johns Hopkins uh, who were looking at the same type of thing, uh, but they're doing so in an experimental manner, which meant that they were bringing people to the lab and trying to have them have these experiences, um, you, you know, usually under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, and of course, that was very interesting to me. And um, thankfully, you know, they thought the work that I was doing seemed to line up with their interests. And so that really kind of led to uh, where I find myself now at Hopkins, uh, because I was offered eventually a postdoctoral fellowship position here. Um, I was able to really kind of uh, cut my teeth in the hard research world, uh, specifically doing human behavioral pharmacology which is a great field. Um, and that's sort of the, you know, the home base here is the behavioral pharmacology research unit. Um, and that has just led to more of this, you know, research, both looking at psychedelics and what they're doing to people uh, in terms of their mental health and well-being, um, but also just understanding the nuts and bolts of these experiences, which still kind of uh, elude our normal rational minds in many ways. So you mentioned some of the the altered states of consciousness um, besides from psychedelics, you know, just experiences out in nature or meditation. Can you touch on kind of some of the maybe similarities and also differences of those, you know, ways of altering our consciousness and how that, you know, how that plays out? Yeah. And, you know, I think as modern humans, um, you know, we are so inundated in uh, sensory stimuli that it, it can be hard for us to think about what our ancestors were going through when maybe the most interesting thing you had to look at was a fire, um, you know, or, or look at the sky. Um, but nowadays, you know, we can put on virtual reality helmets, we can, you know, listen to music, we can do all sorts of different things that I don't think were, were quite as readily available. Um, but, 
you know, those are some of the predecessors, you know, even music and drumming and um, beats and uh, altering sounds uh, in ways to change the way that our brain is sort of perceiving reality and functioning. Um, that was sort of the, the proto, you know, altered states that, that were occurring um, way back when. And, you know, of course, people were also exploring using substances to, to feel different. Um, but to me, you know, it almost seems like if people were sitting around a lot of the time and, and especially when they, you know, were fed and they didn't have a lot of other things to occupy themselves, it's almost like you're a TV channel or a TV, but you're just locked onto this one channel all the time. And that, you know, can get eventually a little bit uh, tedious. Like you want to change a channel. You want to see what else is on. And so to me, uh, that's a, a sort of way that I conceptualize altered states is that, you know, we have this normal channel that we are tuned into is consensus reality that we're, that we're used to feeling and being, you know, in terms of, how we uh, perceive ourselves in the world. Um, but there's different ways to alter that, um, you know, both using substances and also using just basic uh, physiological processes like breathing, like moving. Um, and so, you know, people have long explored those. Uh, and, you know, I think some of the common features of these um, altered states is really kind of hinging around uh, where we perceive our own boundaries to be and then the boundaries that sort of keep the rest of the world outside of ourselves. Um, so that's always been why I've been so interested in what it, what we talk about is self-transcendence because a lot of that is really focused on where is the boundary between what I consider myself and the rest of the universe. And I think that these various altered states, practices, or techniques are often um, specifically changing the way that that dynamic is working, whether we see ourselves as part of a group of people who are dancing together um, or who are all listening to music together in the shared space, um, you know, or whether we're taking a psychoactive substance and all of a sudden the way that we're seeing and feeling ourselves and moving about in the world, you know, is, is quite different. Um, so there's, you know, I think these different dimensions that uh, can come along with different types of altered states, but a lot of them have a lot to do with um, the way that our five senses are working to perceive information and the way that we're interpreting that uh, in terms of how we, you know, feel as these organisms walking around in this, uh, you know, in this environment. It's, it's interesting. I, I was just thinking, as you were saying, like the, um, it's so interesting, just that ways of like altering our, our breath, such a, you know, low budget, you know, uh, you know, uh, not a new technology whatsoever, you know, in terms of like holotropic breathwork and just how that can produce altered states of conscious consciousness reminiscent of some psychedelics, I think is is pretty cool. I I wanted to ask, you know, in terms of when I, you know, look back on like your publications, it looks like, you know, kind of 2013, 2014 was kind of around the start of of when you were kind of putting out papers on on psychedelics specifically mostly psilocybin and i wanted to just kind of you know ask like when you look back you know nearly a decade ago and like what tell me a little about kind of what the psychedelic framework or, or just what the landscape was in terms of with research and i guess people's perceptions of these compounds and how you've you know sort of seen the progression and, and changes um to now you know with with how it's perceived today in, in 2022 yeah, that's a great question because uh, you know, 2012 was when I was finishing my PhD. I wasn't planning on coming to Hopkins, and I had no, you know, earthly idea that I would end up here. It was really a, a you know, synchronicity or you know, a coincidence that I ended up meeting some of those folks and that it worked out that way. But um, you know, at the time there was, and there had been, you know, since uh, the 80s, you know, since the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, a kind of a dedicated cadre of people who were still interested in psychedelics, whether you're talking about underground practitioners, or you're talking about just recreational users, um, or even scientists, you know, who are still in the fields doing pharmacology research, um, you know, in various aspects of these types of drugs. Um, there had been this sort of undercurrent of interest that had been ongoing for a long time. 
Um, it sort of never went away, but it was it was a sort of a small core of people, you know, that were really interested and, and involved in that space. And outside of that, you know, there was probably a couple of schools of thought, one being, you know, that's that stuff is weird. Uh, those people are wackos or, you know, maybe even more um, on the conservative side, you know, those drugs are dangerous. They're going to make you crazy. So that was the sort of general consensus out there, you know, in the world, I would say, you know, pre 2000, certainly. And I think that there became, you know, there be there started to be more interest, though, um, and more legitimate, you know, sources, uh, specifically around, you know, research science that were coming out around that turn of the century 2000 2006 2010 start to see important papers coming out. Um, you know, people like Rick Strassman, people like Roland Griffiths, um, you know, Franz Wallenbeider, um, you know, these guys start publishing papers about DMT and psilocybin and mescaline. Um, you know, even into the late 90s, you had work on mescaline going on over in Switzerland. So there, there was this sort of beginning uh, phase where little by little, the research was coming out, serious scientists were doing it, and it was you know, well-regarded, but still, you know, I think among mainstream scientists and thinkers, it was kind of out there, you know, and outside of the box. Um, and that really started to change right at the time that I got involved in the field, I think. Um, and it, and it's, again, not through any uh, prescience of mine, but just uh, some sort of sheer coincidence that as I was wrapping up graduate school, I happened to meet um, a couple of big researchers, one from Hopkins and one from Imperial College London, Robin Carhart Harris, who were there to talk about uh, their research with psilocybin at this big conference in Arizona. So when I was there, I met them, and that was the very kind of beginning of, of I think, a bigger uh, mainstream interest in this type of work. And you know, one of the big papers was Robin's. Uh, first MRI paper that was published in 2012. Um, another one was, uh, you know, Catherine McLean's paper looking at um, the effects of psilocybin on personalities, specifically increasing personality openness that they published in 2011, I think it was. And so those types of papers represented, I think, that sea change of, whoa, this might actually be going somewhere. This isn't just a sort of um, oddity, you know, out in, in its own you know, part of, of academia, um, there could be something here. And so for me, that was a great time to get involved um, because I was able to come here to Hopkins, work with, you know, some of the preeminent researchers, including Matt Johnson and Roland Griffiths. And, uh, you know, that gave me the ability to kind of survey the landscape, which at the time was still sort of, there's a few papers here and there that had been published and a few other projects that were going on, but it was still relatively small scale. Um, and since that point, 10 years ago, when I arrived here at Hopkins, I mean, things have absolutely exploded. And I think, you know, you can see a sort of progression over time. I think, um, you know, it started with um, Michael Pollan first wrote uh, a column for the New York, I think it was a New Yorker, um, called The Trip Treatment. And I think that was published in 2015, I want to say. I forget exactly the year it was. Um, it was, you know, early on in that time, but it got a lot of people interested. And what he was really talking about at, at that point was some of the work that was being done at Hopkins and NYU with cancer patients and psilocybin and how it was helpful for them at the end of life. Um, but, you know, people like Michael Pollan have a lot of cachet in the, you know, popular culture. You know, he's seen as a, a big time intellectual and, you know, for good reason, he's published a lot of really fascinating and well-researched books. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, when he got interested in psychedelics, you know, that has led to this sort of ongoing growth of popular interest in the field, both with, you know, two subsequent books that he published, um, How to Change Your Mind, and then his newer book that came out recently, and, you know, now the Netflix series. Um, so that just kind of I think exemplifies the, the rapid growth and expansion of popular interest in this um, in terms of people all of a sudden hearing about this and thinking, oh, maybe this could be a legitimate medical treatment. And that's not just the man on the street, but 
you know, that's also been happening within the more academic side of, of the spectrum. I actually just got off a call with, you know, a big society that I work with um, that's, you know, scientists mainly has been around for, I think, 85 years. Um, and we're planning a symposium about psychedelics and, and addiction treatments for the meeting next year. And so, you know, I think um, the real, you know, even government, you know, policy and funding agencies are starting to look at this and say, okay, they're could really be some serious potential here. And so that's really changed the tenor of the conversation. Um, and that's happened, I would say, really in the last five to 10 years that you've seen that that happen. Right, yeah. And and with that, um, the, the Netflix series you just alluded to that came out um, based off of uh, Michael Pollan's initial book, I believe, um, yep. you know, it'll be super interesting just how that, you know, brings such expanded awareness and, you know, new possibilities uh, for, you know, the fields of psychedelic research and, and applications. So, you know, I, I wanted to now kind of dial in on, you know, the, the actual what, if you could tell me kind of what is the process when people are going through these research trials at Hopkins, um, you know, with psilocybin. And, you know, it, it's super interesting to me what you brought up about just kind of like, you, you know, experiences outdoors, experiences in nature, kind of like feeling, you know, one with the earth and like a, how I feel like a lot of people, you know, talk about those similar sort of things with psychedelics. But it's interesting that these substances are being, you know, given to the participants in like a, you know, laboratory research setting, but people are still having these like mystical, you know, unitive sort of experiences. I I thought that was just like super interesting and would love to hear your thoughts on on just sort of the different settings of like people taking psilocybin, you know, as part of a research study in the lab versus, you know, say, say outside. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, because I, you know, I like to think about psychedelic use sort of broadly in, in a few kind of piles, if you will, um, that that sort of sometimes they overlap, but there's really different ways that people use these and you know, it can be used uh, for certain purposes um, in, in different types of settings. And, you know, what we're doing here is really this sort of medical slash research model um, that, you know, is looking at both how do the drugs impact people in terms of their physical and psychological health. And if, you know, there's uh, potential therapeutic uses, how do we use those in a medical treatment setting to help people get those therapeutic benefits? Um, you know, there's always been a long history of people using these substances recreationally. And, you know, that doesn't really overlap exactly with what we're doing here because we tend to have a more medical or, you know, therapeutic intent in our minds when we do this. And so that in involves a lot of wraparound for that. That would be a little bit different than a recreational use setting. And then, you know, there's a, this whole other history of indigenous and spiritual use and, um, you know, people using in sort of ceremonial settings. Uh, that can be also very different than what we do. Um, but, you know, I, you know, the lines aren't clean. Um, but, you know, in terms of what we do at the lab, and, you know, this is um, kind of relatively the, the, the basic model, you know, has five phases. Um, and we begin with the screening phase. And the screening is really important because um, we're trying to find out if it's just safe uh, for this person to administer uh, you know, a high dose of psychedelics. And there are certain people who might have heart conditions, they might have mental health uh, vulnerabilities, uh, might have like a personal or family history of certain mental illness, uh, mental health uh, problems that could lead to ongoing problems after one of these high dose experiences. And so, you know, for safety's sake, we're always starting with that screening process. And it also includes, you know, an informed consent, which is just explain to them what could happen or what we plan to do in these types of studies. Um, and then, you know, granted that that works out well, they move into a preparation phase where uh, there's a lot of getting to know them, they know their life history, formative events in their life, and building a sort of working relationship, uh, which would be really uh, congruent with what you'd be doing in a sort of talk therapy setting with the counselor or therapist. Um, you know, that also involves specialized preparation for going into one of these uh, psilocybin sessions. And you can almost think of it as like you're going to go scuba diving for the first time. You take lessons, you learn, you know, what's this going to be like? 
you know, how do you deal with it if this happens or that happens? Um, so that way that people have a sense of preparedness before they go into this altered state that can be pretty intense, depending on the dosage that's being used. Once we, uh, you know, get through that prep session, uh, those prep sessions, which usually take anywhere from, you know, a couple of weeks to a couple to up to a month, um, you know, we move into the dosing phase. And, you know, the dosing phase is just when people are coming into the lab, they're going to be here all day. Uh, they're in a room that's almost like a living room. You know, there's a couch, there's a few chairs, there's some art on the walls, there's some music playing. And, you know, they're meant to stay there for you know, throughout the course of the day um, to have a experience, an inward experience, as we call it, you know, really want them to be reflecting on their whatever, whatever's going on in their minds. Um, and then, you know, we're there basically to make sure that they're safe and comfortable. Um, and we've already established a sort of working relationship that makes them feel safe with us, you know, and trust the people that they're with. Um, and then, you know, after that, there's a sort of integration and follow-up phase. And the integration, you know, really is kind of a broad term for if you went in and had this experience, you know, coming back out from this experience and then saying, okay, what did you learn from that? Or what are you taking away from this? Um, has it shown you anything that could be useful or valuable in your day-to-day -day life? Uh, if so, how do we retain that or, um, you know, put it into practice? Um, because, you know, you might have an insight such as, you know, I need to uh, work on this relationship with this person that I care about, but they would become estranged for some reason. Um, and you might have a very strong sense that that's, you know, important when you walk out of a session like that. But then if you don't follow up on it, then nothing changes. You know, you had this experience um, and then you don't have any sort of follow through, um, you know, there can be like any number of content or messages or um, lessons that people walk away from these experiences with. Uh, but whatever that is, you know, we're just spending time in that integration phase processing, like what was the experience about? What did it mean? Um, and what does it have to sort of, uh, you know, teach the person or to help them to enrich their life or make it, make it you know, more consistent with their values and priorities. Um, and, you know, then we have typically a follow up phase where once they've kind of gone through that acutely, they've kind of worked through whatever it is that they felt they've gotten out of their experience and tried to, you know, find ways to integrate that into their daily lifestyle. Um, we like to check in on people three months, six months, 12 months later, have them come back and just see, you know, what's been going on. How is it going? Um, have you been able to maintain progress? Have things have there's been some backsliding perhaps um if so how can we course correct so you know, those are the types of things that we would do in a longer term follow-up um and you know for us you know in a research setting it's also helpful is that so that we can ascertain what is the durability of these effects because even though these drugs are being studied for instance as antidepressant treatments or treatments for people with uh, addictions um, we can't really say uh for certain how long do those effects last? Um, and we can't really say, um, you know, how effective they're going to be for people across the board um, because, you know, the data are still quite limited. Um, so that's why we also do those long-term follow-ups. Um, but I think that they can be helpful from a therapeutic standpoint as well to keep people on track uh, if they, you know, are coming in with a therapeutic intent. Um, so yeah, all of that is kind of what we're doing in these research studies with um, psilocybin and you know I think that that you're right um, it's very interesting to think about these people having these big spiritual or insightful experiences when basically what they're doing you know to the outside observers laying on a couch for six hours with their eyes covered maybe listening to some classical music um, you know in terms of people using in you know, recreational settings or more spiritual or indigenous traditions, there is, I think, often a threat of using outdoors, being in a place um, that's, you know, natural, there's natural beauty, you know, that could be the beach, a forest, mountains, um, or, you know, even at a, at a festival or some sort of a ritual. And, you know, that can invoke a lot more, uh, both sense of awe, I think, in terms of being around natural beauty, or a sense of uh, community when you're doing this in a ceremonial setting with other people. Um, and, 
you know, that's that's still quite different from what we do. And um, I think there's probably benefit to lots of different ways of using these substances. So we're still learning more about how do we sort of incorporate the setting and, and optimize that, you know, to make it as helpful as possible. Right. And, you know, when you look at kind of the current landscape of, say, like ketamine infusion centers um, and kind of compare it to like, you know, what you think we'll, you know, we'll see when psilocybin kind of moves from, you know, just the research lab, you know, to more, you know, clinical applications um, once, you know, once it clears all the, the trials, um, you know, what, what do you think the ketamine, um, the ketamine infusion landscape has sort of taught us about, you know, psychedelic therapy? And then, you know, is there anything that you personally having, you know, worked, uh, you know, with all this research and doing all of the, you know, the preparation, the follow-up, is there anything that once psilocybin kind of moves into that uh, clinical application legally, um, how would you sort of see the ideal framework be? Yeah, you know, that those are great questions. I'm not really as familiar with the, you know, uh, ketamine clinical space at the moment. Um, I do know that it's administered in lots of different ways. You know, there's even places or, or organizations that are, you know, sending home ketamine and people are doing it with remote monitoring from medical supervision. Um, but other people go into clinics where they're getting infusions. Some people are going to talk therapy where they're getting an oral lozenge of, of ketamine. So um, lots of different ways that it's being used um, and for lots of different um, reasons, right? You know, some show, people might show up because they're trying to get relief from, uh, you know, treatment resistant depression, which there's great data to show that, you know, and, uh, ketamine has rapid antidepressant effects. Um, there's emerging data showing that with wraparound care of the sort that we talked about or with structured interventions that you can use ketamine quite effectively to treat things like substance use disorder. Um, but, you know, in terms of how people are doing this out in the clinical settings, you know, it can be very disparate and um, sort of all over the place because it depends on how the provider wants to do that. Um, you know, I don't know that I would want it to be fully standardized for psilocybin the way that we have it here, but I also think that some safety measures in place would be useful to kind of keep this uh, to be as kind of effective as, as we've seen it in these lab settings and to have as low risk as we've seen it in the lab settings, because we don't see lots of, um, you know, people walking out of here saying, man, that was a terrible experience that really, you know, had a bad negative impact on me. Um, you know, that's, that's very rare. Um, and the reason is we spend so much time with uh, the screening and preparation process and we definitely work hard to do integration in a way that even if people have difficult experiences, they can get the most out of it. Um, but once, you know, this gets out there into a sort of approved status, and you can even start looking at places like Oregon where they're moving towards um, a sort of medical slash therapeutic use model um, ahead of the rest of the country, um, we're going to see people doing this in lots of different ways with lots of different therapeutic orientations. Uh, and, you know, I think some of it may work better than others. So we'll have to really learn from that to, to try to figure out what's best and, you know, what, what's safest. Luckily, the drug itself is pretty safe. The problem is, you know, um, it, it's a very powerful altered state. And then there's also people out there who may or may not have others' best interests in mind, or they may not have the, the requisite training. So even in places, you know, like ayahuasca churches, there's one uh, in Florida, actually, where a young man died, you know, just because there was a co-administration of multiple drugs and medications that should not have been going together, and there was not an adequate medical response, and, you know, that there was obviously a fatality involved, and that's not not a good thing. Um, I think it's less likely to happen with psilocybin, but um, depends, because if somebody's feeding you a, a slew of different drugs, and you're also on some medications, and you haven't been properly screened, you know, there is a, a possible risk there. Uh, yeah, I, you know, all this to say, um, I don't have a good answer for how this should be implemented in the real world clinically. Um, I do have a couple of things I think should be kind of basic standards. You know, I think there should be especially trained uh, clinical staff to oversee these types of, um, you know, treatments if they're going to be therapeutic treatments. 
Um, I think they're you know likely going to have specialized clinics where you will have a medical doctor. You'll probably have some nursing staff, uh, psychologists or therapists of different types of training, um, and and those people you know should have some basic understanding of you know the psychedelic therapy models and ther and theory, and then they're going to be able to work with people. Again, mainly, I think, in the confines of that space that's been specially outfitted to do these types of sessions. Now, do I think it should all be done indoors and in like, you know, a environment like a, a laboratory? No, I mean, I think if, if you have the facilities and the resources, you can make really beautiful spaces with gardens and access to the nature um, that I think would amplify some of the benefits, perhaps. And we're even using right now virtual reality to put people into you know alternate spaces when they're in their psilocybin sessions now which i think is a really fascinating way to kind of get around the restrictions we have in terms of being in the room because you know with virtual reality you can put somebody in outer space or underwater or on top of a mountain you know at least for a little while and see how they respond to that but yeah i do i do see i think a future for more spa-like settings where people can have psilocybin or other types of psychedelic treatments in a place where there's access to natural beauty and and you know perhaps outdoors right right that's super interesting what you mentioned about the the virtual reality applications there um something i wanted to to get back to that you you touched on in terms of just the safety of psilocybin you know or in in the research when it is you know assuming that you guys have done the, the proper pre-screening that even when people are having like, you know, these difficult experiences that they're not necessarily coming out on the other side, you know, in, in worse shape. And I wanted to, to see if you could just, you know, kind of touch on that and people's, you know, connotation of like a bad trip and sort of how that factors into the, you know, the research setting. And then also kind of something you mentioned before that I wanted to connect to was just about like, uh, I think psilocybin promoting like the, uh, the personality trait of like openness and was wondering if you guys have done any studies or if you've, or if you know of anyone who's doing research regarding, say, like, if someone has a lack of openness, if they're more closed off, whether that might predispose them to, you know, a more challenging experience with something like psilocybin. Yeah, no, those are both really important questions. Um, you know, I think uh, to go back to the the first bit, you know, my colleague, Dr. Teresa Carbonero, had done like a really nice uh, survey study with about 2,000 people telling us about their most challenging, you know, most difficult uh, psilocybin experience. So, you know, tell us about your bad trip. And we had great results there. Not that, you know, it was great that people had these difficult experiences, uh, but these are, you know, people out in the real world and they're trying to give us some insight into what was going on with them. And we found found that you know some people had some pretty serious you know bad effects, including you know uh, developing psychotic symptoms uh, that that continued even after the drug, um, or you know feeling suicidal after these experiences. But they're in a very small minimum you know minimal number of people that that had those experiences. You know the vast majority of these two thousand people who responded um, were actually saying you know even though that was really difficult. I felt like I learned something important, or I'm I'm glad that I had that experience. There was something uh, valuable there, and you know I'd like to talk about that in terms of um, what we call uh, intentional ordeals. And so people put themselves through really difficult things sometimes on purpose, like for instance running a marathon or you know doing something like uh, skydiving, or you know it's something that a lot of people would look at and be like, I don't think I want to do that. Uh, other people will say, you know, I want to challenge myself and do it. And when you're in the middle of doing something that hard, uh, I can speak from, you know, having run a couple of half marathons myself, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it may not be all that fun. And it can actually be uh, a bit of a slog and, and very unpleasant. Uh, and yet when you're done, you know, there is a sense of accomplishment. Um, and so I think that there's some parallel there with these challenging experiences that many people can go through a very frightening anxiety provoking experience, um, certainly people who have the history of trauma. Um, but, you know, I think all of us have gone through difficult experiences. You know, sometimes these psychedelic uh, substances can really sort of shine a spotlight on 
things that maybe we didn't really want to think about or things that we would have rather forgotten. Um, but I think that can also be useful because it can help us to sort of come to terms with difficult experiences we've had in our past, sometimes to forgive ourselves, sometimes to forgive others. Um, so, you know, there can be uh, some benefit there to having these really challenging experiences. But by and large, what we found by you know doing this research in the laboratory is that if you have a sober sitter who's there, particularly one who's trained to do this type of work, um, and who's been you know already kind of acquainted with you in your life story, you know the likelihood that this is going to have a permanent damaging effect is very like infinitesimally low because you know we're able to sit with a person and I can say you know for instance we had a big session yesterday in one of our uh, research studies with a lady who you know did go through some really challenging portions and a lot of that she you know likened to reliving parts of her childhood that were very challenging and, and scary and yet you know the people who were there facilitating that were able to help her get through that um and then you know that kind of helps uh to have this sort of cathartic effect of even though i went back to this terrible part of my life you know i'm kind of now able to kind of cope or accept cope with and accept that a little bit better now um so you know it's it's something that even though we wouldn't necessarily want to choose that experience per se um it can often be very valuable and when it comes to the facilitators what do you see as sort of the uh you know the skills or you know yeah i guess sort of the skills that you know one must possess uh that really helps them sort of be you know be successful in that role you know i think it's it's really important to just have a, a sense of openness empathy authenticity you know these are really you know this is a lot of that is coming from my own background and training um which i have a strong rogerian uh orientation humanistic existential uh types of uh theory and counseling but you know i think you know the main and one of the main principles really with uh rogerian counseling is what he called unconditional positive regard and you know that idea of unconditional positive regard is really that whatever is coming up for this person or whatever this person is expressing or whatever they've gone through or done that no matter what that you're there you're present with them you're empathetic about their experience and that you accept it and you say yeah you know even if it's something terrible or something that they feel terrible about or that they're embarrassed about that you say you know hey you know we're here and we accept you and we care about you regardless of what it is that you're going through and that's going to be true even after this experience and so i think that that can be a really positive and transformative for people uh, to have that when they're especially under the influence of these profound mind-altering substances uh, because they're going through you know their own experience which can be very frightening or um, unusual and so oftentimes there's a trepidation or a hesitancy to go through some of these more challenging uh, drug effects and so for them to be able to accept that you know we also have to model that for them and sit with them and say you're safe we accept you and we accept your experience and I think that that's that's you know a big part of it now of course you know if you're working in a therapeutic setting um, and particularly if you're working to treat things like complex post-traumatic stress disorder you know CPTSD then I think it's really helpful to have a background, you know, in psychotherapy and know what it is that, um, you know, evidence-based treatment looks like, because that's going to have to be a piece of all of this. Um, but just at a very basic level, you know, being a person who is is there and empathetic and compassionate and kind and, you know, authentic with this other person, I feel like is a sort of uh, bare minimum. And, and I think that, but that goes a long way. Right, right. It seems like, yeah, the, the people with the most severe like trauma could end up getting like re-traumatized or further traumatized if it weren't for this assistance. Yeah, trauma, I think, you know, having trauma-informed therapists work with populations with trauma is going to be important with psychedelics because, I mean, obviously people who have a history of trauma are already dealing with um, some pretty significant problems in terms of their mental health. That's, you know, a struggle for them uh, to integrate those experiences. And then if they're coming up again, you know, when they're under the influence of a substance, it can be, as you said, re-traumatizing. 
So how do you handle that in a way that is sensitive to, you know, their needs and is also, um, you know, moving them in the direction of getting better and helping them to sort of reintegrate that experience uh, in a safe way. So it's, you know, it's a challenge, but, you know, clearly uh, the folks at MAPS and, uh, you know, the, Dr. Mithoffer and uh, Annie Mithoffer and, you know, the people that have been working on this field for some time with MDMA have had a lot of success. Um, and so I think that it's possible. It just, you know, requires some training and, uh, and some skills. Um, something else I was thinking about, you know, when you, you made the comparison of sort of, a, you know, some, some in taking on some kind of challenging event, you know, such as, such as like running a marathon or skydiving. And, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, the, like showing yourself that, you know, you're, you're taking, you're undertaking some, some big challenge. You might have, you know, qualms about whether you're going to be able to successfully complete it, but then it seems like, you know, you know, kind of conquering those fears, showing yourself that you can do that seems like it, it builds like a ton of self-confidence. And I'm wondering if you see that also being the case of like people going through difficult experiences and, and kind of getting out on the other side, you know, working through those rather than like, I, I was listening to a, a South by Southwest panel with Tim Ferriss and, and Roland Griffiths sort of speaking out against the use of, you know, kind of like anti-anxiety or, or like serotonin receptor antagonists to just sort of like block the, the difficult experiences. They were talking about kind of the value of, you know, you know, actually working through those. And I just wanted to kind of hear your perspective and what you've seen with, with research participants. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think there, there, we have a conclusive answer yet for when we do and don't want to use those types of medicines, um, you know, using a benzodiazepine, for instance, or, you know, a medication that can help calm people when they're uh, undergoing some like severe dysphoric effects, um, I think could be a good idea because there is a point, you know, beyond which I think you're just causing harm and you're not really helping that much anymore. Um, if the person feels too out of control or they feel like they're just too far gone. Um, but I've definitely seen a lot of people who do well with just sitting there having a bit of interpersonal support, putting your hand on their shoulder and saying, hey, you know, I know you're scared right now, but this is only gonna pass, this is only gonna be a little while. This is gonna pass. You're gonna feel better. This is part of the experience. You gotta go with it. And that 99% of the sessions that I've sat in has been more than enough to get people through this. And then to come back and say, you were right. It was temporary, it was hard, but I'm glad I did it. And, you know, thanks for, thanks for helping support me through that. Um, I have seen a couple of cases where we've used medications and somewhere I kind of go back and think perhaps we ought to have um, because it was really hard to say at the time. Um, you know, I, the general orientation has often been, you know, that we should try to avoid those un unless they're absolutely necessary. Like if the person is going to act in a way it's going to be risky or harmful to them or themselves or somebody else in the room. But um, yeah, it, it can be hard because it can be a very psychologically intense experience. People can be either just reliving, you know, very traumatic events from their past. And sometimes that can be overwhelming, particularly if they weren't coming in to, you know, with a plan to do that. And other times, uh, you know, people could just be feeling an abject sense of terror. And so just sitting with that for a long period of time may not be all that useful or insightful. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to take a lot of uh, discernment from whoever's sitting with those people. And, and, you know, I think another part of this is uh, going through an informed consent process and saying, you know, let's say you get really scared or let's say this terrible experience from your past comes up um, and you are very, very frightened or you're very, very upset. You know, how would you want to be treated? Because if you ask people when they're under the influence, you know, they may not give you the right, the answer that they would give you when they're in their sound mind. Um, so I think it can be helpful to talk to people about that beforehand. We always have medications in the rooms that we can give people if they are too agitated or fearful. But I can say that I think in around, let's say around 700 dosing sessions, we may have used them once or twice. So it's it's pretty low prevalence that that happens. Wow, that's that's very interesting. So 
I I wanted to to ask about like in terms of kind of dosing frequency. You know, I I know I've seen some studies about just psilocybin's enduring lasting benefits. You know, in in terms of the antidepressive effects, you know, months or potentially even longer. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, if there's been any research that either you guys have conducted or if you're aware of any other research going on that's examining, you know, maybe the optimal frequency of some of these, you know, psychedelic uh, experiences, you know, both maybe for therapeutic kind of clinical contexts, along with people who are maybe just using them for general well-being or spiritual growth. And like, you know, whether you know, it could be, you know, someone could cause more harm than good to themselves if they're, say, taking psilocybin every Friday, you know, versus using using it kind of like more sparingly every several months. Or I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I get I get asked that question a lot. And not only that question, but also the uh, kind of a related question, which is, you know, which uh, which psychedelic would work best for my son who has whatever anxiety depression you know opioid use disorder um and you know the short answer is we just don't know we don't know we don't have enough information to say conclusively like oh you should definitely use lsd for this type of condition and you should use this dose this many times and then it should be okay you know um same with the psilocybin you know a lot of what we've done is just using one or a few high doses and then we wait and we see and so, for instance, my colleague, Dr. Nally Gacassian and Alan Davis and others here at Hopkins had um, published a nice paper earlier this year showing that on average, when we took 24 people with uh, major depression and we gave them two moderate and high doses of psilocybin, um, that most of those people were still responding up to 12 months down the line from their second high dose session, but not all of them. And some of them, you know, we're bouncing back into that depressed phase pretty quickly after. So this is something that is a work in progress. Um, you know, I think that there's going to be some individual variability in terms of how people respond to these. And so some people may need more or less, uh, you know, exposure to a drug. And maybe for some people, multiple exposures may not do anything beneficial for them. And in that case, you know, you got to start exploring other options. But, you know, that's not that different from our regular pharmacopoeia right now, right? So if you go to your doctor and you say you're depressed, they're usually going to start you on one type of medicine and you wait six to eight weeks to see if it works. If you come back two, three months later and, you're, and you still are feeling very depressed, they may try another medicine and just see if that one works or some combination of medicines. Um, so I think we're in a similar boat, though it's still early on with the psychedelics, mainly because they're not out there in widespread clinical use. Um, but with the psilocybin, you know, I think the sort of ideal uh, treatment would be that for many people, they may have just uh, one or two exposures to get some long lasting benefits. And maybe some of those people may need to come back for a sort of refresher dose, you know, at intervals of anywhere from six months to a, a year or two. Um, and that's a possibility that that's a type of, of dosing that we might see, but, you know, for clinical and therapeutic use. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really hard to say still at this point. Um, you know, I, I could say though, just looking at the data, for instance, with MDMA and PTSD, that, you know, they see good um, effects and durability for many of those people. And same with our cigarette smokers, for instance, you know, we saw that uh, majority of those had uh, stayed abstinent, you know, long after the treatment up to a couple years later. Um, and similar with uh, uh, our colleagues at NYU and um, published a, a nice paper, I think it was four years after receiving psilocybin for their cancer related distress and finding that many of those people were still reporting benefits. So I think that's really, you know, would be the optimal is that if you can have people not need to get this drug repeatedly, but be able to have long-term benefits, that would be good. And some people may need more exposures, but, you know, as I said, I think there's always going to be some non-responders or people for whom this isn't going to be the right type of treatment or it may not be all that helpful. And, and I think that's a really important message because um, so many people when they're reading the media nowadays, 
you know, really have these uh, misconceptions about how effective this is going to be or how it's going to help everybody or it's going to, you know, be this magic uh, solution. And, you know, oftentimes you get somebody who's really depressed and they may not get that benefit they're looking for. And that can be even more demoralizing. So it's good to have realistic expectations about this as not being a sort of magic bullet. Yeah. And it, it also kind of makes me think about just, you know, the, the, the effects of like the quality of the facilitation and the aftercare in terms of how long lasting these effects are going to be. Cause you, you touched on it before about like kind of the, you know, someone might have the insight during say a psilocybin session where, you know, I need to repair this relationship, you know, with this family member or something. And just makes me think about kind of like taking advantage of that, you know, neuroplastic phase, like, you know, during and as soon, you know, after, after one of these psychedelic sessions seems like it would probably have a big role in, in just how enduring the, the benefits are. Yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with that, you know, because people tend to have a lot of uh, focus on the drug effects and the drug experience. And yeah, that's an important part of all of this, but just as important as those screening and preparation we talked about and that aftercare piece, because if you're working with you know a psychotherapist or if you're working with a counselor um, or some sort of mental health practitioner who's got an ongoing clinical relationship with you you know then the quality of that relationship can really i think steer that in you know more or less beneficial directions and the level of support that people have you know one of my favorite studies that was published from the group here at hopkins i, I was not uh, an author but i did run some of the psilocybin sessions um was they took 75 people um, and there's like a placebo group who got very low dose psilocybin that you know is basically not enough to feel uh, a group of 25 people who got high dose psilocybin with just our regular two on one support network, which would be, you know, myself and a co therapist or co guide who sit with this person they do the preparation the dosing and integration and then that's that or they had a sort of uh, augmented support group which included that two-on-one component, the high dose of the drug, and then there was a weekly support group, almost like uh, if you're going to like an AA group or something like that. But really, this was focused on talking about your psychedelic experience and talking about your meditation practice, which was a part of the, the study at the time. And the people who had that augmented support, the extra support group, um, the community basically, uh, were the ones who had the most benefits and and so and that shows that it's not just about the drug you know it's also about the container in which the drug is being delivered and so that aftercare is is integral for you know providing the platform that people sometimes need to then go on to make longer term changes right right yeah it's it's so interesting just the framework of your guys's research and just thinking about how different it would be if someone, you know, if they're just doing research, whereas like here, take, take some psilocybin, we're not going to provide any sort of preparation support or just see what happens and then measure the effects. Just like, you know, you would think of like giving someone a, you know, antidepressant or a stimulant medication for ADHD. It's, it's cool to see, it's, it's super cool to see how just the, the, your guys's research is, is done with like such a different framework and actually, you know, caring for the preparation and the integration and, facilitating the experience properly. Well, you know, and I would say that a lot of that does come from an earlier era of research where there weren't these, uh, you know, guidelines in place. And there wasn't this level of understanding of psychedelic effects because, you know, a lot of psychedelics research, you know, and just our understanding of them uh, really didn't happen pre-1950. You know, a lot of the early research they were doing some of the types of experiments that you that you noted where you're not really doing much prep you're not really doing a lot of aftercare you're just giving a person a high dose of one of these mind-altering drugs you sit back and you see what happens and then you know in those types of studies what they found often was that oh well this is not working better than a placebo for people with alcohol problems so why is this therapeutic you know why would we think of this as a therapeutic now then you had other groups uh, including the group at Spring Grove, which is down the road here in Baltimore, where they were do, using this type of model of supportive care, and they were getting, surprise, much better 
you know, outcomes in people with substance use problems. And so all of a sudden, you know, it kind of brings into focus, well, this is an important component here. It may, and I think it's equally important, you know, in just regular medicine or psychotherapy that you have that sort of supportive, open and honest communication. But because of the way that psychedelics can really impact your perception and your sense of self when you're under the influence, I think it's doubly important with psychedelics to have all of that wraparound support. Absolutely. Well, I'll, we're uh, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but you know, when it comes to just thinking about the you know the future state of psychedelic research, both with with your involvement with Hopkins, along with what other you know centers and researchers are doing, like what do you see as some of the most promising or interesting? Uh, future research questions that are attempted, you know, going to be attempted to address. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of new and important work happening right now, uh, both at Hopkins and all over the, the world now. I mean, it's pretty neat to have seen, you know, these uh, new centers popping up in different uh, areas um, and also, you know, uh, established researchers just, you know, expanding their, uh, you know, their laboratories and really growing their research portfolio. So you're seeing work with 5-MeO-DMT and you're seeing work with LSD and you're seeing, um, you know, different types of studies uh, for different conditions. So, you know, there's a lot of different directions to take this. You got a lot of different substances that we know about. And so testing those and using them in different populations is going to be really informative because we could start to answer some of those questions I noted earlier. Maybe mescaline is better for alcohol use disorder. Maybe LSD is better for you know, some other type of condition. Um, you know, when you start to look at all these other conditions too that we have barely scraped the surface on, but you know, we've, we've seen pretty good indication that these psychedelics, these classic psychedelics can be useful for reducing depression, for reducing uh, anxiety and for helping people with substance use disorders. But what about other conditions? You know, I have a colleague working on a study of psilocybin and people with eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, a very notoriously difficult condition to treat. Um, you know, one of the most deadly mental health conditions. Uh, we have a huge problem in neurodegenerative conditions, Alzheimer's and dementias. Um, and we've had literally hundreds of drugs that have been tested and failed to help these people. And, you know, we're working on a study now to see how psilocybin can help people in the early stages of Alzheimer's. I think that's really exciting. And if there's any sort of signal of benefit, then, you know, there's a lot to follow up on there. Um, you know, we talked a lot about clinical uses, um, but a lot of our understanding of how those work therapeutically is still in a very nascent stage. So if we could understand the, the biological and uh, underlying mechanisms better. I think that'll help us just to design better treatments in general. Um, and, you know, I think the other portions of this, you know, kind of fall even further away from the clinical side and say, you know, how can these substances be useful for people who may not have a mental health condition, who may not have a dementia or some sort of a, a health problem. And then in those cases, you've got healthy people who you may help to improve their sort of uh, optimal functioning on some level, or you may help them to get in touch with things like their spirituality or their, you know, sense of uh, existential purpose and meaning in life. Uh, that can be very helpful, uh, just in general, to have people become more self-actualized. Um, you know, along those lines too. You know, an area I think is very important is um, how psychedelics can interface with our sense of the natural world and particularly because we're in these big climate crises we've got all this stuff that's going on in terms of the um you know ecological systems that we live you know within whether it's destruction of rainforest you know pollution in the oceans and water sources and you know all the you know plastics and and hormones that have gotten, gotten into everything um you know there's a sense of urgency that we need to act there of course um, but sometimes I think people can get overwhelmed and they can also feel disconnected. And so I think that there's an important role for psychedelics to play to help people kind of feel more connected to the natural world and more called to act to sort of actually protect and, you know, do things that are, um, you know, more in a sustainable mode of living 
um, and in a more in more of a hurry because if we're continuing to say you know we're going to cut carbon emissions by 2050, you know we we could run into some real serious problems. Um, so I think there's there's a lot there. You know, there's so much more to be studied and learned, um, and it's really exciting time for the field right now because there has been such an explosion of popular interest, and as a result too, there's been this a big expansion of the research. And so I think we're gonna, you know, have a lot of new and interesting developments over the next decade. Yeah, and, and it'll be super interesting to see if, if it can, as the idea that you proposed about sort of whether, whether you know, now kind of the resurgence of, of psychedelics could actually change the social climate and call people to act, you know, in terms of the environmental problems. I mean, I think back to like the, whatever the 50s, 60s, and how psychedelic use was changing people's perception, you know, say of like the Vietnam War and causing society, like massive societal shifts and just people's perceptions. So it'll be super interesting to see whether that, you know, a, a similar thing might happen going forward. And hopefully it won't, uh, you know, the, all the research won't get shut down and become super illegal like it was back then. But that's right. Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, there's always that that concern of the backlash against the work. Um, but, and, you know, maybe I'm too pie in the sky, but, you know, thinking about ending things like war and poverty um, are certainly, you know, really uh, tantalizing, you know, possibilities and, and how psychedelics can help, you know, shift us in a sort of global culture in, in those directions. Um, you know, I think of that as very exciting. Definitely. Well, Al, for those who, uh, for those listeners who enjoyed the episode um, and, you know, want to connect with you, find out more about your research, more about Hopkins or just psychedelic research in general, like what sort of uh, resources, links would you direct those people to? Yeah, I mean, a lot of our work is available. Actually, I should say all of our work is available at um, our website, which is hopkinspsychedelic.org. Uh, and that's, you know, pretty easy to find online. Um, we have a Twitter account, we have, uh, you know, a Facebook page that people can follow our lab and our work. Um, I think that's the main, you know, our main outlets in terms of social media. We have a newsletter, it goes out quarterly. Uh, so, you know, people are always welcome to sign up for that as well. Um, you know, and, and of course, there's lots of other labs and organizations that are doing great work in this space. So I just, you know, I really encourage people who are interested to just, you know, get online and start looking around and and seeing what's out there and what's of interest to them. Great, great. Well, you know, Al, it, it was it was such a pleasure talking with you, and I just want to you know applaud you for just your contributions, such important contributions to the the psychedelic research field. Um, and uh, you know, for the for the listeners who uh, who enjoy the show, if you want to connect, uh, we are well. You can listen to audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher or most other major audio streaming platforms. It's the Neuroflex podcast. And you can also find full episodes along with podcast clips on our YouTube channel. That's Neuroflex, N U R O F L E X. Um, Al, again, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today and just sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. Yeah, my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you today, Toby. <laughs>